Welcome to another episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Ken Waters. I'm Managing Director at Penta, based in Dublin. I'm here today with my colleague, Kevin Madden, Senior Partner at Penta in Washington, D.C., who has a unique perspective on the state of play in U.S. politics and its potential global effects. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today, Kevin. Great to be here. Thank you for the warm welcome to the Dublin office. We're, we're so happy to have you. Um, I think that the reason we thought it'd be a good idea to talk was at this time is because we're, we're both in very interesting times politically. We're arguably at the kind of, with the countdown timer for elections on the horizon. And we thought it'd be a good idea to, to maybe take a step back and, and, and think about what that means and what that means for our clients and, and more than anything, just try and get some context around what both of those could mean for, for both their jurisdictions. But I guess from the outset, for an awful lot of people, it'd be interesting to kind of step back and look at some of the, the kind of structures that, that go around both our, our political uh, our political environments. It, it's no surprise there's an absolute fascination with the chaos and the excitement and the entertainment, really, that comes with US politics at the moment, um, certainly in Europe and, and definitely in Ireland. But what are some of the kind of key differences that you see between the, the US system and, and the European systems that we have? Well, first of all, yeah, it is very interesting how... Um uh, everybody is clued in on all of the details of what's happening back in the United States. Um, well, I think uh, the key differences are that um, I think folks in Europe and around the globe used to look to the U.S. as a sort of ballast of stability and used to take a lot of their cues on uh, the big decisions that um, global leaders had to make about uh, different pressures around the globe from the U.S., and now everybody is sort of looking at this ant farm of U.S. politics and all they see is sort of chaos and instability. And I think that's pretty troubling to a lot of folks uh, in capitals here in Europe. And um, that is um, – I think it's a cause for concern and I think that's really what's driving a lot of this interest. Very much so. One of the other things I think is really interesting as well, certainly from, from an Irish perspective, is the, the very structured time for elections that you have in the States. So you have your set periods between, you know, midterms and then to, to presidentials. Well, what kind of effects do you think that the midterm elections have on a presidential and a... a, a Just the a, overall environment? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. To, to effectively govern in that gap period between the midterms and the, and the presidential election. Well, I feel like more and more, and I think this is due to a couple of things. I think at first it's due to the pressure of raising money by U.S. politicians having to constantly raise money and resources in order to prepare for the next election, but also the fact that we have essentially an industrial entertainment infotainment complex of media that covers politics in the United States 24-7. The big, what's one of the differences between the U.S. and here? In Dublin, you don't have uh, the news channels or cable television clued in or, or trained on politics 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the way you do in the United States. Um, but th I think that is one of the most important sort of dynamics on our uh, political system right now. It's the, the, the constant attention that it gets. And that drives a lot of partisan um, focus on uh, what happens in Washington. And as a result, it creates a lot of pressure for members of Congress to react to their most vocal, animated activists on the left and the right. And as a result, we have the um, uh, sort of um, – we don't have a system right now where people are coming together to fix big things based on consensus. And instead, they're very focused on driving attention to their most 
important base activists that are glued to the television watching this 24-7. It's a really interesting point, especially in the context. And the other thing I really want to ask about was obviously the two-party system. And, and the role that plays uh, structurally, I guess, and in how um, and how America functions really politically. Well, um, that that's a very meta question. If I have to break down the history of the two party system in the United States, but uh, I, look, I think it's one of the reasons that we have a lot of the challenges right now, which is that the system is set up to really reward partisanship. Like, if you are a member of Congress. And you come to Washington to work on very big substantive things and you're willing to work across the aisle, the chances are very high that you're going to go home and hear a lot of criticism from your most based activist Republican or Democratic voter. And when you – when it's easier to go home and explain a no vote than it is to go home and explain a yes vote, you have legislative dysfunction and you have what we have right now, which is – uh, five yards in a cloud of dust um, when it comes to trying to get legislation done. Um, even things as simple as passing appropriations bills or a budget in the United States require major, major uh, levels of energy and uh, are increasingly complex when it comes to putting together the coalitions to pass certain bills. And that is right now um, – as far as the eye can see, that's what we are experiencing. And then the other thing is um, at the executive level, it's really hard to see how we'll ever have a president who is what we would describe as popular uh, or has broad, broad popularity amongst the American public because the system is almost built to lose for that, for that, for whoever wins the presidency. You're going to win the pre- – I mean, the, if you look at the margins right now on how, how folks win presidential elections, they win with, you know, 48 to 50.1 percent, right? There's nobody out there with a popularity rating of uh, – in the fifth, in the high 50s or 60s who can really marshal big public support around legislation or any other um, – um, uh, legislative agendas. And so that is um, just putting an incredible amount of stress on our system right now. Completely, completely. The other thing that um, that I think as an onlooker from the outside that has been really interesting over the last while is the increasing, and you, you might disagree, the increasing factionalism within both parties. Obviously, the, the Republican Party in particular at the moment, it's been quite heavily highlighted. Yeah, I think both parties right now find their leadership rewarded if they can express how they're going to stop the other side. And one of the probably most troubling changes in our politics is that um, nobody ever really taught – well, I think increasingly what we're seeing is people being rewarded for saying not that the other side is wrong and I have a better idea than the – like for a Republican to say, hey, the the Democrats are wrong and I have a better way on on how to solve – the economy or how to improve the economy, how to solve all of our challenges as it relates to healthcare or energy. Instead, it's the other side is evil. The other side is taking the country away from its ideals and um, is making us worse. And it is such a level of rhetoric right now that are the, the rhetoric is just so running so hot that it is increasingly clear that too many of these um, candidates are being – or too many of these leaders are being rewarded for describing their party's ideals as what they're against versus what they're for. It's 
it's really interesting. Mm. Like I think um, increasingly it feels like American politics is is won and lost by and elections particularly is won and lost by very fine margins. I was curious what your take as well on uh, the role that third party candidates or independent candidates might um, might have in the upcoming presidential as well. Well, I think a lot of that has to still shake out because I think it's different if you're having a third party candidate run under the banner of a Democratic primary against Joe Biden or if they run as an independent uh, against both candidates. And um, I think one of the things that you're we're seeing right now in some of the early polling is that um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who uh, is now running as an independent, is polling as high as a 15 to 18 percent. And um, that is having an impact on Joe Biden's uh, – or I'm sorry, that is actually having an impact on the race in the sense that is actually increasing Joe Biden's national numbers. Now, national polls don't matter because, as you know, the um, – the elections are done state by state, and we ha- they have to uh, essentially match an electoral college number that um, uh, helps them win the presidency. And um, right now, we don't know how that's going to affect the electoral college, but it's very likely that a third party pulling away from one candidate or the other in five or six key states could make or break the election in November 2024. And so somebody who may have more popular support or a higher total of of votes on the popular vote could still actually lose the presidency because of the way the math is affects the electoral college. So interesting. The um I think the other thing that really fascinates us and, and especially for those of us that are politically minded is is the style of campaigning as well that's that's in place in the states mm-hmm. and you know the role that money plays and and the role that that earned and paid media play in particular because the media markets are so fragmented especially mm-hmm. by comparison or contrast to a country like Ireland which is just just so much smaller but I was, I was wondering from your own perspective um what do you feel are the main differences that you see in the style of campaigning since since when you were at the coal face? Well, in in the United States, it's uh, first of all, I mean, politics right now is almost like the number one popular, most popular show on television. And I mean, it really is. It's in many ways, the media executive produces a drama between Republicans and Democrats. And every day and every week, there's a new twist to that drama. And voters willingly tune in. They're enraptured by the the fight between the right and the left and um and um, candidate A versus candidate B, and um, that's uh, that's really probably the biggest difference I think uh, between um, there in the U.S. and here in in Europe. Um, and the other part of your question was, I, I, I guess the the role that um, the the biggest change in styles of oh the biggest change in styles. Well, it just gets faster and faster every single year. Um, when I worked on campaigns, you know, you had. Um, you had time to catch up to the news cycle because it was um, there was a morning news cycle and then there was an evening news cycle, right? Win the morning with the daily headlines that were be that that were sort of landing on people's front steps in their newspaper and that were being covered in the morning news, and then you know litigate the campaign back and forth between you and your opponent during the day, and then six thirty, seven o'clock, network news or cable news were reporting. The uh, what happened that day on the campaign. Now, with everybody having a supercomputer in their pocket on their phone and um, information 
about the campaign almost being omnipresent. It's a 24 second news cycle. Um, it's, it's, it's just all day long every day. And, um, that pace I think is relentless. And I think as a result, we don't necessarily get a whole lot of nutritional content in our politics. And instead what we get is, um, atomized content, um, things in very short bursts and you get a surface level understanding of what the candidates stand for um, versus a really substantive debate about the big issues that the country is facing. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing and anecdotally um, that, it, that I find has progressed a huge amount and I'd love to get your take on it is the role that big data has increasingly played in elections. And, and in a way, we almost see the development in the social sciences every four years through the development in research and data and, and how to how to utilize new data sets that have never been available before. I think presidential elections really highlight the advances that, that have come on through how to utilize data, how to analyze data, and then implement it into communication strategies, which I think has, has a big resonance to a company like ours, which is obviously completely driven by data and insights. And, and I just wonder what your thinking is on, on where any sort of big changes might come there or how do you feel things have progressed? Yeah, I don't, I, data's not new. Um, it's always been used in campaigns. I think, you know, back in the day when I first started in campaigns, um, for example, we used to call it canvassing, right? So a lot of the volunteers on a campaign would go out and talk to voters and then they would take those conversations back and report back to the campaign. And you sort of got a sense for where your areas that you had to focus on, whether it was in a particular district or in a particular uh, county, uh, and um, that sort of drove your strategy. But I think the biggest difference is the speed and um, how quickly and in real – actually, I would say in real time now, you can manage uh, and understand sentiment of voters and what's motivating voters to move one way or the other on a given issue or what they're, how, how to move them one way or the other with a particular message or um, around a particular candidate. So that data and intelligence in real time um, should help inform better strategic decisions. Uh, and so I think that's the thing, thing too, is that we can measure things as, as um, like sentiment, right? Is like our, our voters feeling strongly about the economy or how they're feeling um, about the trajectory of a given uh, public policy debate, um, and then in real time shift our messaging to 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 ma- match that, and then also measure whether or not the messages that we're promoting on a campaign are having an impact. Yeah, I completely agree. I think as well as like you say, the speed. It's also the accuracy as well, mm-hmm. and then the nuance that you can add to to interpret the data and then refine a message, refine a strategy based on based on the information that you have in real yeah. time. And if you have really good data, and but this is the distinction, I should say. If you have really good data and you have real-time intelligence being fed into a campaign that is that is full of people who aren't experienced and don't have the deep knowledge and don't have the expertise, then it's still it's it's really good data that's being that's not being utilized well. And uh, I think that's the key too is still having the experience and the knowledge of um, how to reach voters and what uh, matters that drive really good strategies on campaigns. That still matters. So the people behind the data, um, the professionals that are, um, you know, uh, gathering it and then developing a better strategy uh, as part of that matter. Completely, completely. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear more about how we can help clients communicate around and navigate some of the key takeaways we're anticipating after the election season. 
Penta is the world's first comprehensive stakeholder solutions firm. We are a one-stop shop for the intelligence and strategy leaders need to assess a company's reputation and make decisions that improve their positioning. As executives in the C-suite must account for a growing set of engaged stakeholders, all with distinct, fast-changing demands, Penta provides real-time intelligence and strategy solutions. We work with clients solving complex global challenges across a variety of industries. Our clients span technology, financial services, energy, healthcare, and more. To learn more about how Penta can support your company, check out our website at pentagroup.co, our Twitter at pentagrp, or find us on LinkedIn at pentagroup. Let's jump back in. I think um, one of the things that I think all democracies, both, both sides of the Atlantic, need to be considering at the moment is enfranchisement and what um, what elections actually mean to the broader public. And I was wondering to get your take on where you think where you think the American electorate is at the moment and, and how engaged it is politically. Well, the, they're very engaged, um, but I think there's a the, the biggest swath of the American electorate right now that's going to make a difference on election day, 2024. Is pretty turned off by politics, and um, they look at all the dysfunction that they see in Washington, and they look at the um, inability to sort of solve big issues, and um, they're pretty frustrated. And they're the ones that are going to make make or break this election. And you know, they're not the ones that these are not the voters that watch cable television religiously or show up at rallies. Um, I think the the folks right now that are somewhat disaffected with politics have to be encouraged to in, involve themselves in the process and then also um, feel like they can they can have a voice in getting things done. Mm. And so you think about your average sort of suburban independent voter um, who ha- you know owns their own house and um, uh, has a, a stable sort of middle income job. Um, they right now are going to make or break this election. And right now they're unhappy with sort of both parties. And that's what's going to matter, I think, on election day is whether or not the one of these candidates, one of these one of these parties can really appeal to them with an aspiration that the country they can put the country back on track and they can put the country going in the right direction. Yeah. And do you feel that's a function of, of politics being increasingly uh, personality driven as opposed to issue driven? I think it's th- the fact that it's um, uh, that nobody in Washington really seems like they're focused on um, addressing the issues that people care about. And instead, they're more focused on motivating uh, their base. Mm. And so they just lost – Overall, it's a reflection of the way that the public has lost faith in institutions overall. Mm. And so, look, they're trying to pay their bills. They're trying to feed their family. They're trying to, you know, get their kids to school every single day. And they're looking for job security in the, in the, in their place of employment. And then they look at Washington and like Washington seems to be focused on things that they don't really necessarily care about. And that's on both sides in the sense that the left is enraptured with liberal approach on um, uh, on things like education and um, uh, energy. And then on the right, this overly uh, this overly attentive focus on cultural clashes and woke politics. Uh, and, you know, um, that seems like out of step with where 
the the average swing voter is, which is, hey, I want to keep my taxes low. I want the economy to continue to grow. I want safer, better schools. And I want more accessible, um, more affordable health care. So f- solve those main problems of mine. And then at the same time, make me feel safe from national security threats. And we've got a deal. And they look at both parties right now and they'll tell you, they'll say, and this happens in focus groups all the time. Nobody really seems to be focused on the issues I care about. So, uh, and that's why we have these very razor thin elections right now, because there's almost an apathy about uh, both parties' um, failure to sort of lead on the big issues of the day. And like you said, I think it's really interesting to unpack like what might those issues be as, as we turn the corner towards a presidential election. Like I know particularly in Ireland, for instance, um, it's, it's been argued that this next general election will just effectively be a, a referendum on housing and the ability to access and secure housing either in the rental market or in the, the owned housing market. I was wondering, you've mentioned a couple of issues, but do you think any of or what issues in particular do you think could be determinant on, on voter voter preferences? Well, I think for these swing voters, these voters that are going – I mean I think if you were to look at a Demo- – if, if you were to look at a map, you'd say, OK, there's about five states and inside those five states, there's about – four or five metropolitan areas that um, are really going to make a big difference and the voters in those suburb areas of those of those metropolitan areas. And the economy is number one. Overall, it's still going to be about people's economic security. But to your point, like under those – under the umbrella of the economy will be things like housing costs, inflation, the cost of health care. And then also there's two other issues that I think really matter right now to a lot of these voters is the immigration, because right now there's a a lot of um, pressure on the uh, southern border in the U.S. and the administration's ability to sort of secure that border and manage that uh, manage that uh, that pressure down there has not they are not doing very well and they're being judged very harshly on some of their some of their policies. And then the issue of crime. Um, people want to feel safe in their community. And in some of these areas, um, people feel like that that issue is trending in the wrong direction. So I think the administration, the Biden White House is going to have to address that because for sure Republicans and the Trump and the Trump campaign are going to try and exploit that as an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you take a step back and, and think of outside domestic issues um, and think more about, like you mentioned earlier, the, the kind of international security angle. And obviously, as, as we're recording, we're in quite a tumultuous time with, with multiple conflicts, um, particularly particularly in the last week or two as we're recording, um, that are very high profile. But I was wondering to what extent international security will play a role um, and to what extent people people will be looking to leaders um, and what, what sort of determining factor that could have. Well, yeah, because we have all these conflicts around the globe right now, I think it'll increasingly be an issue that, that the media focus on, focuses on and, and candidates – will be judged on their response by many voters. I just don't think it's as big an issue or as central an issue as some of the domestic issues that I mentioned earlier will be to it will be when it comes to factoring in to uh, the to voters' decisions. I think ultimately national security and foreign policy are issues that really make a difference when voters consider a candidate's attributes. Is this candidate strong, decisive, um, 
Uh, are they uh, taking the uh, action for the best interests of the country overall? And are they explaining that very clearly, the goals that they have very clearly to to the American people? That'll be uh, that'll be the sort of leadership test for a lot of these candidates. And and we'll we'll see how um, I think one of the challenges that you have when you're an incumbent like President Biden is that if the trend lines on some of these conflicts start to go in the wrong direction, that doesn't bode well for the president's, quote, ability to manage national security uh, or ability to manage the, the country's national security interests. Completely. And I, th- I think obviously the other fascination that we'll have on this side is obviously the, the EU-US relations and, and how that will play out. I was wondering, have you got any thoughts about about where that relationship might go over, over the coming years? And obviously, you know, very different approaches from from two potential candidates. That- well, the big challenge right now is that there's an American first attitude that is sort of coursing through the uh, the American electorate. And um, I think that's different. It's different from times in the past where there was a very shared sense by both parties about America's leadership role in the around the globe. Um, its support for NATO, its uh, leadership at the UN, um, its uh, ability to, to work in a multilateral way to deal with conflicts around the globe. There was a much more clear sense of, of U.S. foreign policy in that regard. It's much more muddled now. The, you, the Republican Party, which used to be much more of a driver of national security as a key principle as part of a platform of national security, economic security, and then um, um, uh, moral values leadership. They, those used to be the three pillars of the Republican Party. I think that national security foreign policy plank has changed dramatically. And um, it's a much more populist party um, that's less interested in promoting its view around the, around the globe. And it's more about, as I mentioned before, um, a lot of candidates in the Republican Party are trying to demonstrate that they're America first. So with that as a key platform of Republicans, you know, Democrats have to compete with some of these voters in some of the rural areas or, or in blue collar areas around that. And as a result, their policies have, have somewhat shifted as well. Uh, so um, I think like I think uh, our allies around the globe have to do a better job of shoring up those inside the U.S. political system who want to make sure that the alliances that we have with our European allies are a issue priority. It's something that they have to do more actively. Uh, if they are going to sort of uh, counter some of these trend lines. To change tack a little bit, I mean, we're, we're about consulting and speaking with clients regularly about a whole range of issues, but I was thinking about what sort of conversations are you having with your clients at the moment around how to kind of prepare for, for any potential changes, risks, and or opportunities that might come up from, from this election cycle? Well, I think many... Many clients are asking the question, when are things going to calm down so that we can take advantage of promoting our issues? And I try to set everybody straight that things are not going to calm down, uh, or at least the way that you think they're going to calm down. Like we're not going back to the good old days where things are – you can count on things to be um, very docile for long periods of time. 
stability and I'm sorry, instability and volatility are the hallmarks of our political system right now. So the most important thing that our clients can do first is do a very um, thorough job of finding out where you stand in this current marketplace and what you have to do to prepare for volatility, whether that's with your customers, whether it's with regulators and policymakers, or whether it's just geopolitical risk overall. And that requires data and intelligence. It is not good enough to just go on instinct anymore. You have to rely on data and intelligence to drive really smart strategies. So that's the one thing that I'm counseling all of our clients to do, which is like, let's spend some time, let's invest some time, effort, and some resources into uh, gathering intelligence and research about where the marketplace is right now. So true. Like maybe we were talking earlier about the the role that data plays in in election cycles and in campaigning, but I think there's so many commonalities to the way you can use that data for for clients. I mean, the the messaging and the nuancing is is all available now as well through big data sets. So I think we're we're having very similar conversations in here in Ireland in the domestic market about how you can use that data to create insights to allow you to be able to to take action and take effective action. And I think you're now able to be in a position where you can take far more measurable action, that you can you can have trust in the actions that you're taking are going to have a measurable impact. I think that, that's a big jump. The, that the biggest made. mistake you can make right now is thinking that um, you can wait, right? And as, as everybody who works at Penta knows, one of my key sayings is hope is not a strategy. Uh, so we have to just go out there and gather um, data and intelligence and do the policy market research that will really drive a good, smart strategy. Because for the next three to five years, this volatility is going to be there. We want to know how we're navigating it. And then also, what are our measurements or key performance indicators for how we're going to uh, make advances in that environment and stay one step ahead of not only regulators and policymakers, um, because we can also serve as a resource to them. They want to know about how this market's changing as well. Um, but also one step ahead of our competitors, right? And so that's a key that's a key element to I think our success right now and the success of our clients is the data and intelligence to really drive smart strategy. Com- completely. And I think the requirements on business, especially from a communications perspective, have increased significantly over recent years. I think the range of issues that a company are um feel obliged at times to to engage on whether it be sustainability or CSR or or a range of like social issues effectively that have that have come onto the radar that you know whether it's there is an increasingly discerning public uh, increasingly discerning uh, stakeholder corner market as well whether it be from regulators from politicians so i think companies really need to to take action to prepare and to to highlight their own issues that they want to engage on yeah. and be discerning themselves about what they choose to to speak out on. And, and oftentimes, you know who's most confused or um, without a directional beacon on this? Policymakers and regulators. They they actually want to learn more about where the where the trend lines are going as it relates to public audiences, voters, uh, customers, consumers, other regulators. Right. Um, so. For, for companies that we work with, in order to position them as a resource, that data and intelligence is huge. It's a huge part of our success, but it's also – I think it's what really positions you for success in the future is that people start to look to Penta and they start to look to Penta clients 
for the data and intelligence that's going to inform them about where things are going. And um, that's, I think, uh, I think a, a key thing to remember, which is that um, everybody's looking around for a flashlight in the dark. How are you using data and intelligence in order to engage your stakeholders and provide them that flashlight? So true. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, to our listeners, remember to like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at, at @pentagroup. That's at PentaGRP. I'm your host, Ken Waters, and thanks for listening to What's at Stake.